You are listening to Making It in the Toy Industry, episode number 136. I was looking for conversion rates, turnover rates of how much product a store could expect to turn over in a year. At that time, the number was 3.3 times. So I took 3.3 times and then took what I thought I could afford as wholesale startup and went, okay, if I can turn over that 3.3 times, that equals this much product moved. Mm -hmm. And then if I looked at an average markup, Mm -hmm. then that average markup would equal this, roughly speaking, profit margin. Welcome to Making It in the Toy Industry, a podcast for inventors and entrepreneurs like you. And now your host, Ajel Wade. Hey there, toy people, Ajel Wade here, and welcome back to another episode of the Toy Coach Podcast, Making It in the Toy Industry. This is a weekly podcast brought to you by thetoycoach.com. Today, my guest on the show is Isaac Elliott Fisher, a cinematographer and documentary filmmaker turned toy store owner and soon to be factory owner from rural Ontario, Canada. Now, since childhood, Isaac has been pushing his own creative limits as both an artist and a movie creator. Before he was nine years old, camera in hand, Isaac was filming eight millimeter film stop motion animations on his Clinton, Ontario living room floor, a camera that's been in his hand ever since. A much later 2008 graduate of the film and television program at Humber College in Toronto, Isaac now brings with him a variety of cinematography skills and experience along with a creative sensibility and passionate enthusiasm. Now, today we're going to be focusing on Isaac's toy journey, but I thought his film history was super impressive, so we had to talk about it. Isaac, welcome to the show. Thank you for being here today. Thank you for having me. The film experience is kind of intrinsically tied in because while I've been a cinematographer for many things from music videos and commercials and feature films and stuff, a lot of bad television. For over a decade, we've been doing documentaries on massive pop culture brands. So mm-hmm. we really, I guess you could say, cut our teeth or we're well known for a documentary we did on the history of the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles that we did from 2000, late 2008 into 2014. And it was released under Paramount back in 2014 with Michael Bay's movie. And that kind of led us down this path of doing pop culture feature docs that dabble into or, or phase into the toy industry. What was the first toy related film you worked on? Probably the first ones I did <laughs> because when I was a little kid, everything was everything I shot was with toys. So I would string little strings on the shoulders of my GI Joes and take them out to the garden with my best friend. And we would have this video camera in the mid 90s and we would do these elaborate edited in camera. They weren't even related to the show GI Joe. They were just mm-hmm. sort of like military show <laughs> stories. Mm-hmm. And we would like bury sticks in the dirt and then with a string and then you'd you'd pull the string and they would make this little explosion in the dirt mortar fire fun yeah. uh, fun little thing so yeah i mean it was our i guess we were probably in our, in our early teens at the time so it was a way of carrying play beyond the years of playing with toys was making excuses to do that by making movies about them or with them i should say and so i would say from there the first major toy one was as i say that the ninja turtles which has such a specific for me it was a, it was a passion film because that which, was for which me. Ninja Turtles film? So we did this documentary called the the definitive history. Oh, sorry, it's called Turtle Power: The Definitive History of the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. So it really does cover 
the entire history of that franchise from the inception with Kevin and Peter in the in the early 80s to the 2014 era since we're doing like a series of three other films on it and so in going into film school or going through film school I had this really interest like I had a big interest in, in learning about the history of that brand so I wanted to to dig in and and find out what was going on underneath the surface and that at that time there wasn't really a lot of pop culture documentary stuff happening yet and we kind of pressured and pressured and pressured the the people who still owned the brand and they said well we can't really stop you from doing the film so you can go ahead and do it and interview us and it just sort of snowballed over a, a course of five years and we kind of really embedded ourselves with with the entire world of turtles and still are working with them to this day since 2008 and this was at the very end of that deregulated era in the early 80s where you had he-man and, and gi joe and transformers coming in where you had cartoons paying cartoons being paid for by the toy companies and so turtles was kind of the end of that where you have playmates toys this very little known doll company decided to pay for a five episode miniseries of turtles and so the toy design and the cartoon were so intrinsically woven that the decisions that the toy company was making directly affected the entirety of the media landscape for the for the rest of the brand for the rest of its history. So you started a company called Definitive Film. Yeah. You did a bunch of projects. The Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles documentary was one of them. What year was that re released? That was 2014. And you did a deep dive on the Ninja Turtles. Do you remember were there any cuz you said you wanted to figure out like what caused this phenomenon? Were there any like key occurrences or things that you noticed popped out in your research and creation of the documentary that it caused it to be such a phenomenon? I think that for the turtles themselves, it was, it was very much about the core concept because the turtles as a, as a property were, they were invented as a comic book that was satirizing other tropes of in the, or, or comics at the time. And so, so turtles is kind of one of those funny properties where you take a really zany idea combining ninja with yeah. a, an, an animal that's anthropomorphized in a strange and a funny way. And it's all kind of comedy, but you have this serious Kung Fu movie take in the background. And then you, so you kind of look at it as they are born out of pop culture they become pop culture as characters themselves they consume pop culture mm -hmm. in the stores. Like that's how they learn about humans. They mm -hmm. like take old VHS tapes and comic books. So there's this weird ultra meta thing. And it was so radical and so wacky and so unique that kids of any era will always want their thing. And turtles had this undergroundness that really made kids feel like it was their own. Right. And and there there's all these, I mean, we've dissected this for so long. There's all these yeah. layers on top of that where they're non-race specific. They are relatively, are boys, but they're relatively gender neutral. They are closer to age as teenagers to the children who are playing with them than say a Superman or, or something like this, where there's right. sort of this, this there's all these like, and also they're the primal character archetypes. The four of them represent four primal characteristics of a, of a person. And so thus kids, all the kids and all your friends could, I'm a Michelangelo, I'm a Raphael, I'm yeah. a this. So you have all of this perfect storm 
working together at a perfect time when the toy business was collapsing, action figures were, were, were supposed to be dead, and then it came into this vacuum and it just exploded. Yeah, I call that one, Toyetic Principle number one, define personalities for all the kids to latch on to, like one of those personalities. So when you created Definitive Films, what was the goal of Definitive Films? And then I want to bridge over into Definitive Toys, like how like how that came to be. What sure. The, yeah. Well, yeah, it's all tied together because yeah. with Definitive, Definitive Films was born out of doing that specific documentary project because okay. I I was this young post film grad who came back to his hometown and 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 was bugging these fr- uh, friends of mine who became my business partners who are considerably older than I am mm-hmm. and so one of them was still a high school teacher they had started doing some video stuff together we had collectively started doing some music videos because they were they do they had they record music and all this stuff so yeah I said, let's do a documentary on Ninja Turtles. And Randall, my business partner, is like, no. And Mark, my other business partner, is like, yes. And then it kind of was like, let's do it. So yeah. as I said, there's this big kind of evolution, which then led us to doing something on Conan the Barbarian, which we're still working on. And then we mm. did He-Man Masters of the Universe. And then one of the projects we worked on along the way, yeah. we got asked. we got asked to do a making of development documentary with the dark crystal age of resistance series with Jim Henson and and Netflix. Mm -hmm. So we were doing that film in Mm -hmm. the UK covering how the creature shop and everybody was, it was a huge production of puppets. It was a beautiful, beautiful 10 part series on all done hand puppets. Mm -hmm. And when we were in the UK, my first son had, had been born that time at that time. And I wanted to collect for him little toy nights and I couldn't find anything in the UK. I was like, I'm in the UK. I should be able to find toy knights and castles. Why can't I find these? Right. So that kind of spawned this idea. Like I would come home, we'd go back and forth and I'd come home and I would be like, well, what if I bought him a bunch of used toy knights, like the ones I had, and I made him a wooden castle. And I was like, right. well, if I made him wooden, a wooden castle, I wonder if other parents would want to buy wooden castles for their kids. And then right. what if I made my own toy nights, but instead of just making them generic, what if Mm -hmm. I took pages out of all of this toy history that we know and with He-Man being a toy first and, and having these little comic books and have creating characters. And then the toy drove the narrative of the, of the the media, et cetera. So that was what, what sort of spawned this. Okay. Now I'm going to create a fantasy IP world that is, that is accessible to kids and gives them this kind of like meaty story and then you have these these toy knights that can be made into a game or mm-hmm. into just toys you collect. And then these wooden castles that go with them and, and make this very bespoke handmade product. And then I went a step further and because I'm strange and stubborn, I said, well, what if what if I just manufactured the plastic stuff myself? Right. What if we didn't go to Asia? What if we right. don't go overseas? Well, yeah. what does that mean? Well, that that spawns three and a half years of a filmmaker trying to become a plastics engineer. Right. <laughs> so, so and, wh- so, and it, it was working. <laughs> and what happened with that? Last time we talked, you were trying to figure out how to make an injection molding machine here in the States, right? Isn't that what you were working on? Well, basically, you know, I bought, I bought an injection mold machine from the States. It's small um, that we're bringing mm-hmm. up here to Canada. That in, and so that spawns this building that I'm sitting in right now is that okay. I, I needed a workshop to work in. And we had built a house here in this small village I live in, but I didn't have a shop space. So there was this very, very, very old two story brick hotel building 
Oh, it was a hotel? To rot. Yeah, oh, it was a turn of the century horse and buggy. Yeah, turn of the century horse and buggy hotel. Um, mm-hmm. Beautiful old pictures we found, everything. And and it was it's like 4,500 4, 4, 4, 4, 4, square feet of uh, space, but it was mm-hmm. like raining inside. So it was like oh. completely... It was like condemned. It was had been sitting here for so long. So oh, wow. we decided to to buy it and gut it and put the factory in here. Yeah. But it was it we're on a main thoroughfare. We're in kind of a cottage industry area. There's there's nothing out here for kids to do. We have three little kids now and we're like, there's nothing for us to do during the day with them other than mm. go to the beach or or a few little museum y kind of things. So I said, Well, what if oh, we made okay. part of it? into a destination so because you had nothing to do that kind of spawned this idea the kids had nothing to do in the area and you're like well i'm gonna yep. gut this space anyway i need yep. to work in it but maybe i can turn it to something more right exactly because then the main level my factory space keeps getting smaller <laughs> and because it's not i'm not build, building large parts right. and i kept going well what if the showroom had, had a museum in it and what if the museum had a life-size play castle in it and what I if it had that, yeah. our retro arcade machines and what if we had also then a store that also like all of the shelves above me have all of these more museum pieces all around the store that mm-hmm. aren't for sale mm-hmm. and then you have you know retro themed candy and 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 just a normal kind of condensed toys or us type of store yeah with a, a bit of whimsy and magic and retro products all jammed into a very confined little space. Mm-hmm. And then the other part of the building, which we're opening up soon, we'll have like a games room that we have oh, games wow. workshop product here. We have board games here. And then that room will have a window that looks into the factory space. Oh, so, very cool. So yeah, you can see pr- product being made. So both That's business awesome. units, like both business units end up f- helping each other where the manufacturing can't rely on this little tiny store Right. In the middle of nowhere for its existence. So it has to ship out to the world. But if you're buying the product out in the world somewhere and you go, oh, you can actually go to Canada to this little cottagey area and see the product being made or or, or vice versa. If somebody visits it's like a the tourist store. attraction, a yeah. factory, toy yep. store and your workshop, the best tax write offs I've ever heard. No kidding. <laughs> as, as a filmmaker, you can write off everything. I mean, as a toy creator. That yeah. whole that whole shop sounds like an expense. <laughs> that's right. We, there's all sorts of write-offs here. Yeah, so yeah no, I mean, that's like, amazing. With the with the toy museum and the interactive space, it's all about like if if you were to look at this only as retail and you right. weren't to include the factory, mm. it's it's very much the philosophy is based around that everything has to be experienced. Everything has to be like a, a consumer that's going out can just buy their their stuff at Walmart or 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 wherever. Right. They like why do you want to go somewhere? Like why mm-hmm. would you want to go and shop at Walmart versus going to shop here? I mean, so so you try to give them give the consumer or the customer as much experience through the door as you can, as much texture. Yes. I mean, mm-hmm. I mean it's not it's not to the level I want it to be yet, but if you imagine How long the way have you been open? Since December 1st. And oh we own we only owned the building since the previous December. So oh, so fast. It was yeah, and and considering that like the there's like steel beams above me, we've put in, we've replumbed the whole building, rewired the whole building, re- 
all the like every single element of the infrastructure we had to build a new building inside of an old building and then rebrick the outside of the building so okay so i want to just give a visual for those that are listening and not watching because i'll be able to put some imagery up sure. for this podcast but you know for those listening this toy store isaac's toy store is called village toy castle the logo yeah. is kind of like a retro vibe to it. There's like a oblong cir- a purple circle behind the word village. There's like a castle image be- behind and on top of that word village. So the yeah. and the the facade of the store has a very like medieval castle like look to it. But then yeah. the product inside is seems to be a nice mix of, you know, modern products, but it does seem like you have I mean, you have this giant play castle in it. So it's still leaning toward the knights like that yep. kind of play. So yeah. so how would you describe the store's overall vibe, I guess, or how would you describe this toy store? It's it's very retro and fun. We bring in a lot of product from Schilling, which is really popular here because of course you've got the little little wooden boats and the tin the tin robots and the racers yeah. and the and the old school and it's all the the branding on that the little toy soldiers and stuff. The branding on that is very 50s and, and earlier. Yeah. So it really fits the vibe because we're both like we're both from a, an area in the world like North America. None of the buildings are are really that old. Mm-hmm. Like you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. A building like this, like the, these yeah. are pretty rare now yeah. to be because most of them are knocked down. I mean, this right. building would have been. It was built by a man named William Dixon who came over from England in the 1800s, and it was wow. a hotel. And then it was burnt. It burnt down in 1896 and was rebuilt in 1897. So, like the old railing, you can't see it in here, but I can send you photos. Like the old railing to the hotel upstairs is behind the counter. The trim that was in the building we repurposed into the shelving. So we tried to, to tie in as much of the feel of being in an old town building. Yeah. But but like it, rather than being say like an old towny general store or something that is sort of tied to say the purpose of this area mm-hmm. which would have been all is all farmland still mm. doing something radically different like a toy store and a, right. and a different theme on top of it but respecting the building's architecture yes. and history at the same time so you're kind of playing this balance so it is like i say it's in like if you walk through today at the, the, the recording of this interview it's still only like 60 percent of the magic i want it to have but people still come through the door and go, oh, my God. They're, they're, I mean, they're I can see the before and after photo. And you did a yeah. lovely job. You're such a cinematographer of taking a very similar photo of angle. And it's yeah. a very dramatic angle with the blue sky. It's great of the yeah. before. And then we can look at the after. I love how you painted the name of the toy store with a logo huge on the side of the building and the way you light your signage. It's great. OK, since we're still talking about you as a retailer, I've got to ask mm-hmm. a couple of things. First, are you are you a part of any of like the organizations for toy retailers in the industry? Not yet, because this has happened so incredibly fast. fast. That, I have a feeling that, that's your doing, but okay. Yeah, I'm like I'm like trying to, and, we, and I'm not kidding. Last week we had another kid, so I'm like, oh my gosh, my life, what? My life is like, <laughs> oh, congratulations! Oh. We had a third boy. Oh like, my yeah, god! I'm surprised I'm still standing, but the oh, my my wife is my wife is still standing. She's she's amazing, but the. Yeah, so the two of us are still running this business and and you know wow. having a family. So not the, yet. Yeah, not yet. So yeah, no. It, there's so many like we basically were just rushing to get suppliers on board, knowing yeah. that the sh- the shipping crisis was going to be a problem. Yes. We we kind of like rushed at pre-ordering 
back like last August. Mm -hmm. So I had stored all the product in my basement at my house Mm -hmm. so that when we opened December 1st, I had stuff in the store. But I mean, like I say, we're in an area that doesn't have a huge population density. So I couldn't expect, I can't expect the local demographic to be able to sustain the store year round. Like I have to be able to bring in the, the, the tourist dollars, which all come into this area. But I was totally blown away when we opened it in December because I, I was selling stuff so fast. I had to reorder within you know a few days. It was really okay. Wait, was I'm sorry. Really we have great. to hold on. You're, yeah. you're prompting too many questions. Yeah, I've already got one in the back. I'm going to ask about people that would love to maybe pitch to get their product in your store. We got to address that Two, yep. We've got to address advice for people that want to try to do this on their own. What kind of capital investment should people be looking at? Let's start with as a, a new toy store owner, if there are people listening that have what they think are just specialty toy stores, because you're essentially a specialty toy store, right? Yeah. How, are you accepting new creators to get their product in your store? How do they pitch it to you? What's your process like for vetting new suppliers? Well, that's actually a great question because I haven't experienced that direct supplier experience yet. So far, we've been almost exclusively dealing with with like suppliers, like your your Everest, your kid toy in Canada, those those type of big suppliers. Uh, Playmobil. I'm yet to get Lego in the store. Lego wasn't doing any new accounts in a, around the shipping crisis, and and I guess they're notoriously known for being really slow. So I've gotten partway <laughs> through the process, and, and then they went silent. So it's been very frustrating. We want to get Lego in the store, big time. So, so are you currently the, leveraging I'd say, big name brands, or are you still open to like small startup brands? Hundred percent, we're open to, and I, I've always wanted to have small startup brands or really unique stuff here. Yeah. Because that's sort of the name of the game here is to kind of have this unique feel. So I'm obviously open to any product that has been manufactured anywhere, but I'm really excited to see stuff that's coming out of North America, right? Like I'd love to see where's the domestic stuff coming from. Are there domestic doll makers? Are there domestic doll house makers? Are there, Mm. and can we work together as an industry across both the manufacturing and the, the retail to find ways of, Yes, we all have to accept that price points are going up across the board, regardless of where the product is coming from. So you're open to smaller brands, but obviously being a new toy store, you got to reel the customers in with those bigger brands too. So you need to have a nice assortment. The question was, how do people kind of pitch their product to you if they want to be considered for your toy store? Sure. Um, I mean, people, people seem to be able to find my cell phone. On, I, I, okay. I have that like, I, like that's the store phone. Look, here it is. There's the store phone. What? And and it's like it's so funny because like people will will find, and I've, oh, I, oh. I it's like I, I don't want to sound like I'm being mean to customers, but no, so, no. like people will phone me and say, "What are your hours?" I'm like, "You got my phone number from Google." Oh my god, has the hours of the store. Oh my gosh, that's too funny. <laughs> you know, but I right? wonder if they're unsure because your hours are like Wednesday to Thursday and Saturday to su- Sunday or something like that, right? No, I'm, I, I'm closed. I'm closed Mondays, Tuesdays, but that's because we're open on weekends. So yeah, no, they can, they can find my, don't, don't call my cell phone every day, but like all our social media, you can message me directly and, and you, you'll, you'll okay. get me. So yeah. And all right. And then what advice would you give to people that are thinking about starting their own toy store? I do get people messaging me about this a lot. I've yeah. never done it. So I don't know what to tell them. I'm like, I don't know. You know, this is not my area of expertise. What does right. it take financially and emotionally? <laughs> like, what does it take? Well, you have to be crazy, but that's yeah, fine. Okay. I'm crazy. Yeah. But like the, 
for me, coming from a film background and coming from a very broad film background, film is a very superficial facade based industry. We are Mm. like, we're one of the worst industries in the world when it comes to like, we design everything around how something looks and to be the most appealing. So where people see discrimination or sort of like, like not, not good things, you kind of, you, if you peel back all the layers, all it's based on is money and making something look good. If so if they say, well, everybody's the same size and they're all so beautiful in movies. And it's like, well, yeah, because it makes money. Right. <laughs> and that's yeah. a horrible thing. No, right. Yeah. Like I don't, mm-hmm. I don't condone it. I think it's a sad reality of how this sort of superficiality of, of presentational business works. And I think that not to equate what we're doing to that, but that attention to detail and holding ourselves to such high standards visually in the film industry and, and executing at this level constantly and having to make everything out of nothing because you have no budget ever. Having access to many different creative skills mm-hmm. will help in the execution and hold those things like visual presentation of your retail space and the signage on your building and the counter that your cash registers on. What does the cash register look like? What is it sitting beside? You know, you can read all those marketing books that you have to kind of start funneling that into something that is cohesive and it works with your brand vision and it gives the customer a sense of experience. And, and, and I'm always sort of disappointed by small retail when I walk in and go this, you could have done so much more with the sign. You could have done so much more with this entrance. You could have done so much more. And and I know that's not everybody's expertise and that's fine. You don't have to be good at all those things. Don't be afraid to bring in somebody who's really good at, at sign stuff, but then be the boss that is connecting all the dots. So then in terms of your other question, in terms of finances, that's another big kind of observation I would make when it comes to, depending on the physical size of your retail space. And that was something I, I had no calculator to say, well, I have X square footage of space. How much product can I fit in here? What yes. is that going to, what does, what does X thousands of dollars of product look like on this 12 foot wall? Well, mm-hmm. it was surprising how, how much you could fit into a space, meaning that <laughs> this wall, oh my God, this wall is actually like $10,000 worth of, of wholesale goods and it's not a very big wall. So mm. like, and that's a big thing with small retail is that so often it's understocked or you've only got one supplier. Right. You need to kind of, especially with toys, you need to grab cram that all in there and have a lot of variety and a lot of color. And I mean, we made a very specific choice to try to, to stay above the preschool market age bracket, Mm. because there's a lot of options for people to get baby toys or things out there. And also I I would, I just didn't have the space to spread ourselves too thin. Mm. And you need to have that density of product. I think out of the gate for people, you want to be open the hours you say you're going to be open. You want to have good hours and don't change those things. And because then you look wishy washy and, and have a lot of stuff when people come through that door the first time. And then for us, it was, you know, at minimum, I think we started with fifty dollars or $60,000 worth of, of product in a small space. And that's so, not counting. You completely renovated, designed, and made this to Well, we had to, bu- we had to build a building. Time. Yeah, you built a <laughs> yeah. building. And on top of all that, I'm curious, how did you calculate or did you calculate and project what you thought you could make in this space? Were you basing that on what you thought the people in the area could buy? Or were you saying we're going to do in-store and online sales? No. Yeah, no, I wasn't going to do online sales for multitudes of reasons. One, a lot of suppliers don't 
they seem to all have this like caveat where they don't really want you to, but I didn't go into details to why, because mm-hmm. I wasn't really interested to begin with because I don't want to be, that's a lot, as a whole other department's job just to be doing shipping and handling. Right. Yes, yes. And, and so, so yes, it could equal more volume, but now I have to create shipping labels all the time and deal with yeah. couriers. And so like there's a million and one other online stores out there. People can buy, buy, buy online everywhere. So right. why compete in that space? I will compete in a space where there is a huge void of, you know, mom, Experentials, pop toy yeah. stores, right? Exactly. And, and, mm-hmm. and I kind of looked at it and went, you know, and this is, I don't want to sound self-aggrandizing or, or, or ridiculous, but like, if I type in the internet world's best toy stores or world's coolest and you get the big ones. And I mean, I've been into Hamleys in, in, in England and, and, you know, you know, the, the, the Schwartz is kind of gone now, but there's a yeah. different version of it. But like, I looked at it and went, I don't like other than scale, like physically, like Hamleys is huge. I mean, it's multiple levels. I can't match that scale, but can I beat them on, on very like intimate interaction experience? Mm-hmm. Maybe, you know, maybe mm-hmm. I can be be better known than that in a way. Yeah. What I did kind of pull from in business plans, because I mean, you should have a good business plan. I took online, there was some stats, I can't exactly remember where I pulled them, but they were like the last previous two years at the time, sales in the hobby toy and game industries as as taken by like sort of retail watchdogs, right? So mm-hmm. I was looking for conversion rates on, and and turnover rates of how much product a store could could expect to turn over in a year within yeah. that category of the industry. And then that I think at that time, the number was 3.3 times. So I took 3.3 times and then took what I thought I could afford as wholesale startup mm-hmm. and went, okay, if I can, if I can turn over that 3.3 times, that equals this much product moved. And mm-hmm. then if I looked at an average markup, then mm-hmm. that average markup would equal this, roughly speaking, profit margin. And and I couldn't pull the data for this specific area because right. what am I going to compare it to? There's nothing in the area, yeah. So it's, yeah, it's sort of, so at some point you are totally pulling this out of thin air, which which is, that's any venture capitalist kind of, or, or kind of thing like this, that that you're you're taking a entrepreneurial that's the word i was looking for um yeah you know risk. attack on it risk yeah. yeah so so i think that it's on track to working and and we'll see how the the new the next christmas season goes so your first month did you say you sold through we like we were like i had to reorder fast i was worried about having empty shelves like barbies and hot wheels just disappearing <laughs> first i have to say if you can happen to come across the link where you did find your data Mm-hmm. would love you to share. We would love to like link yeah. that in the show notes because I do know there are people that listen to this podcast that would love to start their own toy store for their in their neighborhood and they can't find that kind of guidance and mentorship. So if you could for help sure. with a link, please throw it in there. How did you market your toy store so well? Where did you what did you do? Well, I mean, I think that here where we are and what we're relying upon in this, this specific geographic area, mm-hmm. visually speaking, I didn't have a lot of competition because this village that the village toy castle is in is one of those blip on the maps. You, you blink, you miss it. And there's no reason to stop here other than oh the burger gosh. bar. That's okay. it. Like there's, I'm not going to rely on foot traffic from a town of let's say 200 people. We're on Lake Huron right across from Michigan. So the, so we're, 
like an hour away from Detroit where we are. And this, but this, this, the largest towns in these areas are like maybe five, six, 7,000 people total. We relied very heavily on the fact that we we're on a very public, busy highway and a crossroads between like kind of the different towns. So we're on our way to kind of everywhere and on our way to the wineries and the breweries and the cottage area along the lake on the Lake Huron area. Cause we're about 10 minutes off the lake. Mm-hmm. So our visual presence of the building itself and that big logo you see on the, in the pictures, that was a huge portion or component because we were restoring this building for over a year and we haven't even finished. Like you, you mentioned the photos of the outside. It was impressive to see how many people were just plain curious because That's when you fantastic. drive by and yeah. you see a big, you see, you see a big toy store sign, you go, yeah. most people want to go see a toy store. I know. Right? And I love on your Instagram, you have a link that goes right to buying a gift card for village toy store. Smart. So, okay. So you've got, it's a toy museum. It's a destination. Yeah. It's a toy store. It's a place to buy product, but it's also going to be a factory. Now let's get into the factory part of it. Why sure. did you do this to yourself? Is there any, <laughs> no, is there any product that you're already producing that you sell in your store? No, not yet, because literally okay. that part of the building is still not done. Okay. We very much had to, for time and financial reasons, we had to get the, the retail spot open as fast as possible yeah. so that it could start generating a cash flow to keep the rest of the project alive. Yeah. Because it is it is incredibly expensive, as you can imagine, to... Mm-hmm. The manufacturing side isn't moving as fast as I want it to be, but I, because I've been developing that for like three and a half years now. Uh, what are you trying to accomplish with this manufacturing arm? The, the, the manufacturing arm is I'm trying to basically be able to produce in short run quantities at an efficient price, plastic, pr- first and foremost, plastic products. There's printed products. We can do vinyl printed products and, and wood products too, because there's a wood shop and a plastic shop side by side. When you say um, short run, how many pieces are you talking? Well, it's hard to say because, it, it, as you know, it all comes down to the size of the part and everything. So for our toy soldiers, say two and a half inches tall, if I can get two to three soldiers on a tool and I can do a cycle time of about a minute per cycle, you can crank out a few hundred a day on, mm-hmm. on one machine. And a single operator may actually be able to operate on more than one machine. So mm-hmm. you could actually, say, have a, a single operator producing, you know, all of a sudden you can double your output with a second machine. And they're not that large and they're not that expensive to use the machines that we're using. The expensive part, as you know, is to do incredibly high detailed tooling. Mm -hmm. Now, if I was to be say, okay, I'm going to make a simple toy boat or, hey, this broken tractor that I've got to fix here. Most of the tractor's parts, most of the boat's parts, they're very, you know, large, so require large machines, but they're, they're simple tooling. In the mm-hmm. sense that it's just a curve. It's not mm-hmm. a, you don't have a lot, of, like you have some characters and some small, but like my toy soldiers are like as detailed as a miniature from Games Workshop, right? Oh, okay. So, so how do you get that kind of detailing into the metal tool and not spend six, seven, eight thousand dollars <laughs> per tooling insert or ten thousand or more? So we came up with a way of, of, combining ancient and new technologies to cast our tooling for a 10 times cost reduction. So I was able to produce tooling inserts for peanuts that had the, the, all the detail. Like if I had my fingerprint in that tool, you would see it in the, in the final product. Right. So with this tool, you could theoretically produce even an action figure. You could break things down into smaller components and the thing is, is that like 
like I, I am not a I'm not a, a plastics engineer by trade, but it's sort of like how can we think about it out of the box and and sort of break the mold, so to speak. And as you know, I'm sure you've come across there's lots of art toy industry people who do like say versions of He-Man or versions of of Star Wars characters, but their own ideas. Mm -hmm. And they usually are hand casting Mm -hmm. with silicone molds and they're making resin parts Mm -hmm. and they can maybe produce, say, a dozen in a day or Mm -hmm. at at most. Mm -hmm. And they have to charge high rates for that. Now, they're catering to a collector market. Yeah. So maybe they can justify that. I'm trying to cater to a children's market. I want to sell into, so I need to pass safety standards. I need to pass. So you cannot right there. I can't use silicone molds and resin. So the, I couldn't go that route. So I had to adapt the traditional methods of, of manufacturing into a modern context domestically. And I think that because I'm stubborn Mm -hmm. (laughs) and because I'm naive, Mm -hmm. I was able to go, well, what if you kind of totally took this radical left field? And I've spent, countless hours talking to other industry people and they have this kind of blank look on their face and they get kind of frustrated because the way it is is the way it is they don't want to acknowledge even the possibility of changing anything so i've mentioned you were working on something to somebody in the industry and they like laughed and said good luck and i was like oh i think yeah it's good no it's incredibly and i mean i I know it's incredibly negative and it's so and and i've had i've had so many people say it like that and and yeah no i i get their sentiment from the perspective Mm -hmm. is it easy no of course not yeah but i'm not i'm not like not deterred or surprised by things being hard. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like we work in the film business again. Like, yeah. you know, you're trying to make, you're trying to make a movie look like a hundred million dollars on $10,000. Oh my gosh. Right. So, right. And so you go, how can you do that? You have to just think differently and just do it. And now sure and there's, it, there's limitations to reality, but. <laughs> but I also, I mean, I think it's so worth it. I had like one consultation client the other day who is in, he does the collector market. He does the silicone molds. And if he could domestically produce, he, he wants to get into the kids market with his designs. So yeah. Yep. So if this was a possibility, I'm sure he'd be like, oh my gosh, let me connect with Village Toy Castle, the factory huh? retailer yeah. and museum and get <laughs> hundred percent. And it's like, and here's the thing, like people have said, can you patent your process? No, I'm, yeah, I'm can combining, you? I was going to ask. I'm com- well, I'm combining pre, it's like, I look at it this way. And somebody actually did tell me this at one point who was a mm. consultant said, listen, it's kind of like having the secret sauce recipe at a fast food joint oh. where it's like, none of those things are necessarily patentable because it's just, you're just combining pre-existing spices <laughs> like okay, okay. it's it's the ratio to which you are doing something mm. and it's not to say that that i what i what i'm holding is some sort of big secret i am yeah. totally happy being with people and and sharing all like i say it all the time in interviews and 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 I, I go like no here's here's how i'm doing what i'm doing here and i just want to work with other people to 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 who are open to that idea and i think the maker space that you're mentioning is ready mm-hmm. to do that, but it's getting people with the tacit knowledge of understanding how tooling works mm-hmm. to work with the artists who are desperately trying to make their cool things yeah. and get them to communicate. And I, I was actually, yeah. I was very surprised at the hurdles I've been, I've been faced with that part of it because there's a big resistance on the part of anybody who works in the tooling business to have any conversation mm. at all. 
and and the and the art side of it doesn't have the confidence they all just look at you like oh i don't i don't know how to handle an undercut and i'm like it's not that complicated yeah it's yeah, just yeah. you know yeah. like you yeah. just you can't have the thing here and it's go it. yeah, and, yeah, and, yeah and they just you yeah. know because they because but i even, also kind of feel like and this is why i made this podcast i feel like there's some people and some elements of the industry that want to keep people who don't know everything like just out a little bit and by making them feel inferior or insecure about what they don't know even if they're super talented like just because you don't know this little thing you can't be in this club and i i just i'm so against that (laughs) so i you know know, here's here's the thing is that like when one of my one of my um, great mentors and friends is a guy named Steve Varner. So he, so he's instrumental, obviously I mean, turtles is and, and yeah. so many different toys that he's made yeah. for, for decades and decades. He he's such a, <laughs> well, he's such a, a good guy. He, he comes from a generation of people when he worked in the basement at Mattel, you were learning from the people in front of you and, and there, the machines were down there to do paint masks for Barbie. Right. They were down there to do, to do technical, let's try a tool and we're, we're going to, we're going to work on it. All of that was exported and all of it disappeared. And the knowledge that passed on from generation to generation died with that. Yeah. So when you, when you, when an entire, okay, take it outside of even toys, you go an entire economy in North America where you go, if a company recently, I read a company wanted to start up a jeans factory, but nobody knew how to set up the looms to weave denim. So they had to go find a bunch of retired, really old people to go, Hey, could you come here and show us how to yeah. set up this thing? Because yeah, yeah, they yeah. don't like, like, so if you want to, so, you, so if a society loses the ability to mm-hmm. make things and understand mm-hmm. how, where food comes from and yeah. how to make your food or, or, or a pro, our part, that knowledge dies with that generation. It doesn't yeah. carry on. It, yeah. it, Google doesn't retain tacit knowledge. And have you ever seen the movie, the founder? Cause this is what yeah. you, yeah, you have. So I feel, yeah. you know, that scene where they're in. And so for those listening, the founder is like the story of McDonald's. Yep. Do you know the scene where they're in the it's like a basketball court, I think. And he's like drawing the plan of how they're going to make the burgers really fast. So I'm imagining yep, yep. like what you're doing with your factory is like that, like you're making the secret sauce that's going to make it cheaper and maybe not faster, but cheaper. So that a whole business is built was built on that a whole empire was built on that foundation of having the right recipe. Yeah. So I think you're onto something. I hope so. And I hope even people that are listening to this want to reach out and, and, and it's like Matt matching up the, the skills and abilities. I can do a lot of things, but I don't know how to use ZBrush. Right. Okay. Actually like, let's do that. What's a call, a call for skills and abilities. What are we looking for? When it comes to this kind of toy making most toy designers, like, and I know a few whether they're make whether they're sculpting physically or they're sculpting digitally, they don't really tend to to care about how the part's going to be made. I need those people who have the skills and abilities and artistic ability to to design the end part to then take a step back and go, well, let's have an open conversation of how simple is it really to mitigate undercuts, find a parting line, mm-hmm. pose your figure mm-hmm. or pose your thing to to fit within the structures and confines of a two part, three part mold, etc. So I need people uh, that have a vested interest in taking it those steps fur- further who want to get involved in something on a, on a ground floor, so to speak, and say, okay, let's, let's make this work. You've heard it. Isaac is looking for you. If you <laughs> <laughs> will leave your contact info, probably your Instagram in the show notes. 
I want to go to our closing questions. This has been a great sure. talk. Thanks so much for being here today. What is the best piece of advice you received? Let's say in the first year of your career, it was probably your film career. <laughs> well, when, when you're in the film business, it's a hierarchical system, right? And so they want you to shut up and toe the line, right? I had mentors close enough to me who cared enough to say, you know, put your head back on straight and focus on the job you're doing in front of you. What piece of advice would you give to somebody who's looking to open their own toy store? I would say, think about how to best present your, your idea and is this the right place and try to think of it more anecdotally, mm-hmm. right? You mm-hmm. go, is this, is this a good town to open a bookstore in? Is there already a bookstore here? You know, that kind of a thing. But yet do it with your, your, your vision, own character, your vision. Yes, thank you. Is that because it really, I think this world is, is in retail is sorely lacking in, in curatorship of, by people right? By a person who goes and chooses that product, chooses those toys and presents and curates a selection that's not based on an algorithm, that's not based on a computer. It's telling, it's your gut saying, I like this. This is fun. This is cool. Let's present that to the world and see what happens. Yeah, I agree with that. I have to plug Toy Creators Academy here because in the first first and second modules, that is where I focus like research. And like you said, it's not just research. Like how many kids age seven to 14 are going to buy this doll? It's more about what exists in the world. Where's the opportunity for what I think I want to bring into it. And then like adjusting what your, your vision is. If like you, you might realize a bigger opportunity, you might have to expand your vision more or you might want to narrow it more. But yeah, I think that's great advice. Yeah, And, and, and don't let it, don't let it drag you down and and do what you, you love and you want to do, because I think the best properties, the best stories, the best books, the best movies, the best toys all came from somebody who went, this was cool to me. Yeah. I thought it was fun. I made it for me. Yes. Here you go world. Even with my podcast and stuff, like if I had really researched, I would have found a lot of stuff that I would have been like, oh, never mind, I won't do it. But I didn't like, I just knew I was like, no, I think there's nothing like me. So I'm going to do this. Okay. Last, last question. What toy blew your mind as a kid? So, so I think that Playmobil and Turtles, because I was such a funny kid that wanted to play in those, those realms. But if I didn't have an Indiana Jones toy, I could make a Playmobil that looked like an Indiana Jones or you know what I mean? You could play any category in there. And I think that the Playmobil is like, um, it's an unsung hero. I think of that category because a lot of people focus Lego mm-hmm. and I'm like, you know what? Playmobil, that's me, man. I love that stuff. Well, yeah. Isaac, thanks so much for coming on the show today. You shared a lot of great tips and advice. Where can people connect with you and village toy? You can find village toy castle at village toy castle on social media, whether it's on Facebook or Instagram at definitive toys is there. And then of course our, our definitivefilm.com, You can find all of our film stuff. Fantastic. We'll put all those links in the show notes. Thank you again for being a guest today. Thank you so much. Well, there you have it toy people. My interview with Isaac Elliott Fisher. I'm sure you're as impressed as I am how Isaac started a toy store. That's also part museum part play space, and soon to be the center for his new manufacturing techniques for plastic toys and toy parts. In this interview, we talked about how Isaac made it all come together, how he used research data points that he found online to estimate 
what kind of profit return he might be able to get on his store. You found out how much money goes into creating a brand new toy store and the kind of out of the box thinking that helps in the process. Now, if you, my friend, are someone that fits the description of a creative who's interested in figuring out how the toys will actually be manufactured, reach out to Isaac through his social media accounts for Village Toy Castle. That's at Village Toy Castle on Instagram. Make sure you check it out or at Definitive Toys and at Definitive Films. I hope you enjoyed this episode today. And if you did, I hope you will leave me a rating and review. Your ratings and review mean a lot. They help other people find and give this podcast a try. So if you love this podcast and you haven't already done so, please leave a rating or review wherever you're listening. As always, thank you so much for being here with me today, Toy People. I know there are a ton of podcasts out there, so it truly means the world to me that you tune into this one. Until next week, I'll see you later, Toy People. Thanks for listening to Making It in the Toy Industry podcast with Agile Wade. Head over to thetoycoach.com for more information, tips, and advice. Hey, are you an aspiring toy inventor or toy entrepreneur? Then you should check out Toy Creators Academy, the first of its kind online program designed to help you develop and pitch your toy ideas. Head over to toycreatorsacademy.com to learn more.